0: Welcome to episode number 68 of the Grab Blogger podcast. This is the podcast where we're helping academics change the world through online business. We're helping you by giving you the tools, the tips, the strategies, and the techniques you need to build an online business around your research experience, around your expertise, and around the change you want to make in the world. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about building an online business directly out of graduate school. And to do that, we have on the call Jennifer Van Alstein from the AcademicDesigner.com from jennifervanalstein.com. That's V-A-N-A-L-S-T-Y-N-E.com. Jennifer, welcome to the GrabLogger podcast.
1: Chris, happy to be here.
0: I'm really excited to have Jennifer on. She recently had me on her interview series at the Social Academic or the Social Designer.
1: The Social Academic. You are right.
0: On the Social Academic. Yes. Is that at theacademicdesigner.com? Is that right?
1: It is at the theacademicdesigner.com.
0: Yes. She had me on an interview with the Social Academic at theacademicdesigner. dot com, talking about my journey, um, including leaving my corporate job in two thousand sixteen, building a blog and a business through grad school, going into my business full time after graduating, and through the discussions with her before and, and leading up to that interview, uh, we determined that that's kind of a similar track that she took um, out of grad school with her own work and her master's in English from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to get her on the Grab Blogger podcast to share her journey, and kind of just have a back and forth episode on what it's like leading up to finishing your graduate degree um, and then going full-time into online business afterwards, hopefully you can pull out a lot of great tips and, and uh, strategies for the audience that's listening as well. So we're going to go into Jennifer's story. We're going to talk about what she does at theacademicdesigner.com, things around finding clients and and what that transition was like for her and and some of the things I learned through that process as well, which uh, some of the audience will be familiar with through through this podcast. So Jennifer, maybe just to start off, can you take us back to your journey? How did you get started online um, with your work?
1: Yeah, well, um, I'm a poet. I got my MFA in writing and poetics from Naropa University and then went on to get a master's in literature where my focus was research on poetry. During that time, I ended up with this assistantship for professional writing and really got to get down and strategize what did we want our our department to say online, on their website, on social media. Um, And I got a lot of experience doing that and Ended up loving it, so I wasn't planning on doing this afterwards. Originally, I ended up in it kind of by happenstance. I moved down to Louisiana with my fiancé Matthew, finishing up his PhDs. He had an extra year, maybe a year and a half beyond when I graduated. And I had this time here where I wasn't actually planning on doing much. I was actually in a retail job working um, at the mall selling high-end women's clothing. And I enjoyed that job and I was gonna continue working on my poetry, working on a number of different projects while he finished up his degree. But right before I graduated, my store closed. And I realized that I didn't have quite as much of a plan for the next year as I thought I was going to. And so I really had to strategize and think, what am I going to do? I'm only here for a year. Where I live in Southern Louisiana, they actually are very against hiring people who are from outside of Louisiana because they expect that they're going to move. And if they asked me, I, like, I wasn't going to lie to them in an interview and say, I'm, I'm going to stay down here because I really wasn't. So I decided that I wanted to consult and make some academic websites as a kind of side business. I thought that I could make more at that than I would have at retail. So that is what I had started out thinking that my business was going to be. And it ended up really growing away from there pretty quickly. I would say once I started doing some market research and talking to people about what they needed, I realized that a lot of people do need academic websites, but most of them don't even know how to get started on managing their online presence. And so the business kind of grew from filling the need from actually going out and talking to people in my audience and seeing well, where they needed to go from there, because it wasn't where I thought it wasn't just building academic websites for people. Yeah, some people will need that. But realizing what the problem was and trying to figure out a solution was really what drove me to kind of dive into business and become an entrepreneur.
0: Oh, I love it. And I, I've started about five different words on my my notes already that I think we're going to try to touch on. <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited. I, I want to go back, as you mentioned well, first off, what's the time frame for kind of finishing your degree and and having that year where you were working retail and your husband was finishing up? Can you give us an idea just on what year that might have been in?
1: That was two and a half years ago when I found out that my store closed. Uh, I was two months away from graduating with my second master's and I realized that I needed to make a plan. So the idea to do consulting with academic websites grew really quickly. I had done my own. I had created one for my fiance who had been on the academic job market at the time. And I had been taking on kind of small projects here and there to learn more about web design because that was something that I was interested in. I think that... For me, I kind of had that summer to do a lot of research after I graduated and then I started taking clients at the end of summer.
0: So that was the end of summer 2018? Yes. Excellent. In your graduate program, you kind of mentioned that you became involved with something with your degree with helping you build websites and kind of learning the strategy there. Can you just walk us through that a bit? I think that might be something interesting for someone who's in graduate school now to maybe keep an eye out for.
1: Oh, definitely. Um, So that assistantship kind of came up by happenstance as well. I had been planning on teaching online and teaching one English composition course in the spring, but I really didn't want to teach two courses. Teaching online was my preferred method. And so I was trying to figure out if there was some other thing I could do other than teaching another in-person class. I was finishing up a, a number of projects. I was quite busy personally. So when my professor mentioned that she was opening up this assistantship for professional writing... I kind of jumped in there and I said, I am perfect for this job. I think that you should give it to me and here's why. Um, I laid out all of these different things that I'd done in this kind of realm, like getting my literary journal of my undergrad magazine, um, a website and getting them an online presence. I continued to do that during my MFA uh, for literary journals. And I really wanted this particular position. I thought that it was something that I could do well at and that I might want to do a career out of. So I kind of talked her into it and that was it. You know, a week later I told I was told that I got the job and started my journey there.
0: Really cool and you you mentioned already a kind of couple things around online like you sort of knew that you preferred to do your teaching online more than in the classroom. Was there something there? like That was before even the the business and stuff, but what made you sort of gravitate towards online as being a mode of life for you, I guess?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's not that I didn't like teaching. I mean, I think that I was a, a good classroom teacher as well. I just found that I didn't really stop getting anxious. Um, it didn't It didn't necessarily matter how well I knew the material or how friendly I was with my students or how well their assignments were going. Um, I still had some anxiety um, in front of the classroom that I just didn't get when I was teaching online. And when I designed my first online course, I realized that I could really understand where students' needs were. I could measure their outcomes on a more individual level. I found it actually more direct in my ability to help them as individual people and within their their specific field, since everyone at that level is going into a different avenue. So helping them learn how to communicate clearly was what inspired me and i think me being more comfortable with it being online was kind of telling for me that that was probably not what was going to be the best thing for me moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool cuz i think there's probably some people in the the audience that are listening and going that sort of resonates with me. You know, i i've i've done maybe teaching through graduate school and and I've, maybe i maybe haven't done anything online or maybe done a bit online but i i want them to know there's a road there.
1: Absolutely. You
0: have this interest and then this opportunity came up. And is, would this be the... Perf- the?
1: It was the the English department at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Uh, and they were putting together a professional writing team for their social media, for revamping their um, website department pages, everything from content to strategic planning. And I really got to kind of spearhead that in its first uh, three months while, before I graduated.
0: That's really cool. Because I think... The, those opportunities are gonna I imagine they've exploded in the last three to six months as universities are going all online I think so something to keep an eye out for if somebody's interested to try to find those assistantships, then you mentioned you sort of had a portfolio of things you already had built up and and that you could you know demonstrate that you're the right fit for that position
1: yeah absolutely and um in 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 those months when I was doing. The professional, develop, uh, the professional writing team for the university, I spent a lot of time doing professional development training and making sure that I knew best practices when training wasn't necessarily available to me. I, I figured I had these set number of hours and even though there wasn't enough to do during those hours, I filled up that time with um, trying to learn more to improve what I was creating. And that really benefited me in terms of being able to speak about what the return on investment was for what I was doing, being able to understand my worth in terms of how I would eventually package services later, and understanding really how I could help um, a specific entity, organization, department, person communicate what they do by figuring out what their needs most were.
0: Yeah, I love it. So that kind of gave you the skills then to be to have some skills online and, and marketing and social media and, you know, how to tie that all together.
1: Yes, but recognizing that it was something that I was good at, that I was comfortable with, was a huge factor in actually turning it into a business.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was going to kind of ask is you, so you you finished graduate school. It didn't sound like from your story that you really had the business part in mind
1: I really didn't. I, I honestly thought I was going to consult, uh, maybe build build some some websites for one or two years, um, and then when we figured out where we were going to be, look for jobs. Then uh, I did not imagine at the time that it would be my full time business long term. And now that it is, I couldn't be happier.
0: Awesome. And you you said that you had you took on um, the project with your fiance's website, and then a couple of small projects. Um, can you kind of maybe just walk us through that progression? How it it started in the the part that I want to dive into is this starting thinking that you're going to do consulting and then realizing that after talking to people and and maybe even how you talk to them, found oh that's maybe not the biggest need that you can fill. There's other things that you can do. Just kind of walk us through that progression a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when I started taking on website projects, it was because I had created my own. As a poet, being able to have some kind of online presence is really important in terms of publishers and editors knowing that your work is something that's going to be read and really weeding down what they have as a huge stack of submissions. Up tier literary journals, the average sub acceptance rate is like one maybe two percent so you really have to do everything that you can to try and get your name out there and so i had a website pretty early on it was a personal website that i used for my poetry and you know a bio i didn't have a ton on it and it grew from there And really when I started being interested in websites and in terms of academia and how I could help faculty and graduate students specifically, was when my fiance was um, on the academic job market for uh, American literature jobs, which there are none, uh, I, as I imagine yet, yeah, there's there's no jobs in literature and especially very few in American literature. So he has since uh, moved away from, from academic jobs, but at that time we wanted to do everything we could to give him the best chance possible. And that meant putting together a website, making sure that all of his CV things were on there, putting together a teaching portfolio that could be easily accessible online. All of those things, uh, I went out and tried to figure out what, what is going to work best, what's working for other people.
0: So you started on this kind of consulting track. You are building your business sort of out of graduate school. How did you, how do you feel at the time about online business and your, your prospects here? You kind of mentioned that maybe you might do it for a year or two. turns out that you're, you're, you're beyond that now. <laughs> Where'd that come from?
1: Yo, I had my two-year anniversary um, just just a little while ago, so that was very exciting. I I think that it really grew, again, from starting to talk to people. I thought that when I created my website for the academic designer and put some information out there about why websites were important for faculty, that all of a sudden, you know, people would say, hey, I need an academic website, that's a great idea. And there are people who do have that inclination, but what I quickly found out is that most people aren't really ready to consider that. There's a lot out there about academic websites already, and not all of it is so helpful, or probably more people would have academic websites. The truth is, it's a really big project, and it's a long commitment. Having a website means keeping it updated and knowing what you want to put on there and um, making sure that things like security are taken care of. So uh, it's a bigger project than a lot of people are ready to take on. And that wasn't something that I had anticipated when I first started. But after talking to people, I quickly learned what their needs were. And it wasn't always, I need a website now. It was, I need to figure out how to start managing my online presence. I am not doing anything. (laughs) And so understanding how I could help people and where my services were most needed was kind of a big part of that journey
0: cool, so let's let's fast forward a little bit then in terms of your business today. What do you do at the academic designer and maybe even at your your personal website if that's part of the the business you know what what do you offer today? What are your business models there?
1: Yeah, well, I help um, grad students, faculty, and researchers communicate what they do with the world online. I do that mostly through social media, websites, and strategic communications planning. I have a blog where I share advice and interviews like the interview that we did together. And so some people are there just to learn a bit about how to, how to start managing their online business. And so I help a lot of people that way. But people often need more information. They need more guidance. And so I also have online courses and one-on-one services where I can do it for you or um, give you the tools that you need to do these things yourself.
0: And who's, who's your um, clients and customers for these courses and one-on-one coaching? Do you have sort of an ideal target or even the most common type of people that you get to come through?
1: Um, I've worked with people in in a lot of different fields. I would say that The majority of people who actually want a website, a full website where where they need to know what to do, they need design, and they need actual implementation of, of, you know, content creation, most of those people are are senior academics, they're research labs and research centers, Uh, people who know that having that online presence is actually going to generate more research funding for them and more awareness of their work. They're they're usually already prepared that that will take a a while, that, that, that it's going to be a big project for them and they don't want to do it themselves. So that's that's most of the people that I work with in terms of one-on-one services. And then I consult about website strategy and do my online courses with a lot of graduate students, faculty and researchers kind of at all levels who are who are interested in doing it themselves.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So we have sort of the full service, full website, one-on-one with um, senior academics, research labs, academic centers, the more the one on one do-it-yourself with the courses and training, what kind of methods do you do to uh, attract clients? How are they coming to you? How do they know that you exist and and become interested in in working with you?
1: Yeah. um, I'll be honest. When when you asked me this question, I I definitely had to think about it. Uh, Most of my customers have found me um, to be open. Um, I'm very active on social media. I'm, I'm open about accepting clients. And I share two blog posts a month. So... I think that a lot of people are finding me organically uh, through social media and through Google search and becoming aware of my services that way and also hearing me through word of mouth.
0: Yeah, I love it. And so, I mean, that would be inbound marketing as opposed to you you know, doing hard sells and that sort of stuff. People are coming to you because of your presence, because of your personal brand, because of all the things you talk about.
1: That's correct. <laughs> but I would say I didn't know that it was called inbound marketing until this past year when I when I got a certification in it. Again, I didn't come from come into this through a business or entrepreneurship perspective. Like I, I didn't have those skills coming in and I've had to learn a lot of them as I've gone along and improving my systems, improving everything from how I communicate with people to how I nurture those inbound leads, is something that I, I've been growing with and, and learning over time.
0: Yeah. And I want to come kind of back to some of my story for the, you know, getting started in online business right at graduate school, but I want to close off this, this part, because I think kind of dovetails in. So your leads are coming in, your customers are coming into to you because they know about you, because they like, know, and trust you. And you think that's most likely because of the content that you're creating. Do you have any tips or strategies for folks on, on that content con- creation side? What should they be thinking about creating? How should they be sharing it?
1: I think for me, um, when I, when I talk with people about this kind of thing, it's really about what, what do you have available? Some people are, are, also researchers and they're, they're very busy themselves. They don't necessarily have a lot of time to create a ton of content. So trying to figure out the type of content that is best for you, the medium that's best for you, maybe it's video, maybe it's audio podcasting, maybe you're great at writing blog posts, trying to figure out what the largest piece of that content can be. And then figuring out how to break it down is definitely what has worked best for me and what works best for the research centers and the different acad- academic departments that I work with. Um, you have to work with what you have available and then improve your systems from there.
0: Yeah. and So I, I kind of want to dive into some of these because that the content creation side is where I get started. So I left my my job in 2016. I started trying to, to build couple different businesses. None of them really made any sense, like a gluten-free subscription service and a ticket swapping service and all this stuff. But I ended up blogging about my research topic, which happened to be, as you know, because we just did an interview not too long ago, um, around dust explosions. So in industrial safety and industries handling powdered materials. And I did a lot of content creation for probably about a year before I started monetizing that that blog. And I did things like what you're saying, where identifying questions people had just in, in the last podcast, episode 67, with uh, Dr. Echo Rivera, we kind of talked about this uh, as, as myth busting. So what are the myths in your your research field? And that makes for really great content. Interviews are a really good one. We did And I did the world's only roundup post of combustible dust experts. We had 40, I want to say 40 or 38 or something like that. Academics and industry practitioners and specialists submit questions to what is the number one question or the number one difficulty and challenge in industries handling combustible dust made this giant roundup post. Um, and I can assure you that nobody in the field of combustible dust had seen a blogger <laughs> in this space and certainly hadn't seen a roundup post, but it was sort of applying some of these things I was learning about online marketing, about online content creation to a blog in a very specific niche. And you're seeing success with that too, right? With your interviews. I mean, that's what, what we did um, at the social academic,
1: I'm seeing a lot of success with that. Um, I'm being able to interview people like you and graduate students and researchers about what they do for managing their online presence has been so much fun for me. Honestly, I, I started it because I wanted to talk to more people and be able to share their voices. But now I get so much out of it personally that I'm never going to stop. Like this is this is something that I, that I really enjoyed. And so because I enjoy it, I want to create more of that type of content. The other other type of content that I create a lot of is how-to guides and advice guides, specifically for social media and academic websites. And I think that one of the things that I didn't touch on before, but I want to make sure to note, is that Creating content that can be reused again and again, that can be reshared because it continues to be valuable and helpful for your audience is a great use of your time. If you're trying to do your content planning and you're you have a lot of ideas and you're trying to wheedle them down into what you're gonna do first, try and think of some things that you know you're gonna be able to share not just now, but in six months from now or a year from now. And That's really when it comes to um, understanding your audience and understanding what they need and writing content for them. Um, Once I started understanding that more and going back and even improving some of my older posts, I saw a huge turnover in terms of how many people were coming to my site, how many people were staying on my site, and how many people were returning. So it was all about um, not just figuring out what my audience needed, but also going back and improving stuff to make that even better.
0: Yeah, and I've seen some of the the posts that you came out with when I was doing my research for your interview, and I, there was one that was uh, social media platforms for academics and sort of just had a breakdown of the different platforms um Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and just, you know, best practices, I guess is maybe what you call it, but, you know, ideas and things for academics and researchers, which I think would be interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that it's, um, it's a great place for for academics to get started because you can't be on every social media platform, not really. I'm, I mean, you can't put your attention and energy into engaging with people on every single one. So knowing knowing your options, uh, I would say, is the first step for approaching social media and being able to figure out what's right for you and right for the people that you most want to connect with. But for researchers, that that's a great guide because it gives you kind of a, a handy breakdown of what your capabilities are with each platform in terms of who you can reach and what you can share.
0: Cool. I just found it on your site. So we'll we'll um, grab a link to that and put in the show notes at grabblogger.com slash 68 for this episode. I want to talk about the research for content again, because you mentioned research centers, so like high level groups. How do you come up with a list of things for them to write about or, you know, content ideas or topics or you know, that they're, that they're creating content, but is there like a specific methodology you use to figure that out or what's that look like for you?
1: The way that I approach all new, all new projects that are like that, that are about online communication is by starting with what each individual center or labs needs are. So I need to understand what you're sharing now. I need to understand things like what you most want to communicate and who you most want to communicate to from there. There is a lot of research that's involved in terms of what those audiences might be interested in. Um, I do a lot of SEO keyword research and long tail keyword research to find out what questions and topics people who are interested in, say, engineering research centers are looking for and to see what other centers are writing about. Sometimes from looking at another research center or a lab, I can understand like the the type of goal that they have from a blog post that they're maybe not sharing. And so that can sometimes give me an idea for um, improving content as well. Um, So it's a mix of um, SEO research, understanding the audience of the individual client and also doing some competitor research to see what's working and not working for um, other, other centers out there.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll drop a couple of simple ones too, just for the individual, if you're a graduate student and you're, you know, you, you've, Say so you've created your website. You went to uh, the getting started mini course at grabblogger.com. Now you have your website up and running. You know, you're you're ready to start creating content. And then you're like, oh, what 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 the heck do I write about? <laughs> um I mean, a place that I like to start is just find the you know the top five textbooks in your field on Amazon. Just open up the table of contents and you'll find years and years worth of content that has already demonstrated that it's important. So it's not about copying the stuff that's in the textbook, but it's about taking the the chapter titles. And those are topics that you can write blog posts about. So if I opened a dust footage textbook, I'd see, you know, laminar flame propagation, turbulent flame propagation, industrial impact, industrial safety, industrial standards. Those are all things that I started creating content about early. And we still create content about dust safety science. So that's like a, a really simple way. Because um, people always ask me, they get worried about, well, what if I share my research and then a journal doesn't accept it? Well, if that's an issue, you don't actually need to share your research it's more communicating the body of knowledge that's available in your field more effectively and being seen as that resource that people can go to in your field when they want to do that. So that's kind of one tip. Another one I like the competitor research landscape. You know, there's some detailed tools there's that you can use for keyword research. A really simple way is just to start typing your topic in Google, let it auto-finish, select what auto-finishes, then see what website comes up. That's the website that's winning today on that type of topic so if you're doing plant biology type in what is plant biology or you know start typing questions about plant biology the sites that are coming up are the ones that are winning in seo and you can open those sites and see well you know what are they doing you know how complicated are they if they're if the website looks bad and like the post doesn't make sense <laughs> and that sort of thing then you can probably win pretty quickly on on creating content like that so it can give you an idea of how competitive the landscape is for the keywords that you're looking at before you get into the tools like ahrefs and you know all the the different seo tools and kind of give you a a place to get started on this content research as a graduate student if you're planning on doing this and and you know getting your your blog and your traffic built up so that you can hopefully create a business when you're done any other kind of tips there is anything that i missed or any anything kind of bubble up as I as I ascribe those?
1: Yeah, well, while you were talking, one thing did come up. And that was, that for me, understanding what my client sees in a competitor site is also very helpful. So I'm likely to ask them to pull it up on screen share and take me through what they liked or didn't like about a competitor website. That can often bring up um, completely new avenues of thinking that I wouldn't have come up with on my own. And so I feel definitely understanding what my client's needs are and what 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 they like or don't like about something has been really beneficial for me kind of being more empathetic in terms of understanding where they're coming from and why they're approaching a specific need in their redesign or in their website project.
0: Yeah, I love it. It's it's helpful to hear that kind of side of how to interact with clients, how to um, get their opinions. The best part about getting their opinion is then you you know what they like and dislike so you can do more of the things they like and less of the things that they dislike in your work
1: exactly <laughs> and and it can really help you understand where maybe maybe the vision that you have is not is not the same vision that they were thinking of and and can help you um kind of understand that early on in the process as opposed to at the end and um, maybe the client not being so happy with the final project because you didn't understand their needs initially
0: yeah you probably only learn that lesson once or twice or three times and then you realize that you need to get things squared away at the start.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's all about improving your processes, improving your systems. For me, it's about asking the right questions. So after after I have client meetings, if there was a question that I thought generated a lot of good ideas, I'll make note of that and ask that type of question again. And so improving my systems of communication with clients has really been about evaluating what worked and didn't work during client discussions.
0: Oh, I love it. And I, I just wrote down client discussion, SOPs. Uh, we might get you back on to talk through some of your processes because uh, that'd be something that'd be helpful for the, the audience as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm i great at talking with people, um, especially figuring out what their needs are. So I'd love to come talk with you more about that.
0: Cool. So we we've, we've talked through your background. We talked through how you get started, what you do now at theacademicdesigner.com, how you find customers and clients, what kind of customer clients you're doing with, what kind of tools and processes you're using to figure out what content to write about. If you picture back to somebody who's kind of just getting started, wants to build a business online or is at the very start of this process, do you have any tips for, for them and what should they be thinking about to uh, get off the starting block?
1: Yeah. So the most important thing for me when starting was understanding what my value is as a woman, as a Latina in the academy. I think that I didn't always understand how valuable the work that I was doing was to um, different clubs, organizations, or, or departments that I was working within. I did work mostly um, in in university systems uh, until I graduated. So going out there and learning from people in industry, what people actually pay for that kind of work was so eye-opening for me. If I didn't talk to people directly during that time, I think I would have significantly undercharged for my services, not for one year or two years, but potentially forever. And so that that was definitely my most important thing. Understanding what my value was, understanding what that meant for my clients, and being able to communicate that clearly.
0: Yeah, I love that. And do you find that you also have better clients because you're coming into a better level
1: significantly yes not only do I have better clients but I have clients that that they know that they want to work with me they know that they're going to benefit from the 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 project that we work on together and that is it's I don't know. As someone who's introverted, as someone who's kind of anxious about pleasing people, um, that's a huge relief to me. And it's something that I can tell in that very first meeting when we're first talking about what their needs are. So being able to evaluate evaluate that quickly um, has been a huge benefit to my working relationships.
0: So I know this might kind of be a, a little bit of a difficult question to answer, but how did you go about setting those prices? You mentioned you talked in to industry, but I'm just picturing the audience right now going, well, I really want to do this. I want to charge more. I want to charge uh, the market rate. But then being stuck and saying, well, I don't really know how to figure that out. Do you have any words of wisdom for that?
1: Um, Yeah. So I found most of the people that I communicated with about prices specifically within Facebook groups that were specific to my industry. So in uh, website design groups, in PR groups, public relations groups, and in social media groups on Facebook. So I found some larger groups where the communication and the conversation was quite active and um, was a regular participant within those conversations for about a month before I reached out to some people and started asking questions or, or even writing a post asking a question about pricing or packages. I got a lot of really honest feedback I got some mean feedback as well that I was charging too much for my for my things and um, definitely had to disregard some advice uh, when it came to that. And also just having all of that kind of positive reinforcement when someone when when you can go to a group and say, hey, so the client that I was talking to told me that they do want to work with me, but they only want to pay half for my services. And that's just an example, but it is something that happens to a lot of people in social media. So I do want to bring that up. So let's say that your client says, I I want these services, I want this package, but I want to give you half, what do you do? And so there were a lot of responses that were like, don't work with that client, it's not going to be a good fit for you. And then there were others that were like, well, you can adjust your packages and tell them what you can do for that. So being able to have real people um, give you advice about a situation that comes up as it happens was super helpful for me. Um, The other thing that was beneficial was having actual support from professionals. Um, I hired like a bookkeeper. I hired a a lawyer for business advisory that would go over my contracts. And they were also very clear about I guess, setting expectations um, in terms of money and in terms of the specific guidelines for my services and in terms for my services right in advance. And I think that having their support and the support of those public Facebook groups was the only thing that got me to raise my prices and the only thing that really got me to stick with it for long enough to realize that I was getting better clients, that I was being able to help the people who really needed me the most.
0: Yeah, cool. I appreciate you sharing that. And I'll I'll share a bit of a personal story that I don't think I've shared on the podcast before. But I used to attend blogging meetups here in, in Nova Scotia in my home province in Canada. But there's only one group that had that had had bloggers in it, and it was the ECM Media Influencers Group. And they had a couple events a year. And uh I would go, I was I stuck out like a sore thumb. ECM actually stands for East Coast Moms. <laughs> <laughs> So and they don't mind me saying this, but it's a collection of mommy bloggers and travel bloggers and DIY and do-it-yourself kind of. You know, I was one of very few males in the group. I was certainly the only one blogging about dust explosions. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting because I'd sit at the tables at the kind of lunch times and stuff with the, you know, the groups maybe six or seven people, and it would just be the whole time a discussion around pricing for influencer. Deals like uh, Canadian Tire did this and this was their terms. And it, it was interesting to sit in on those conversations and hear it. And I'm thinking, well, how is this going to apply to my branding and my marketing strategy? And a lot of my, actually a lot of my strategy on how we build our sponsorship division in uh, safety science were built out of these meetings and discussions. So the Facebook group's a good idea too, um, but also attending these sort of on uh, in-person meetups. Even if you are the, even if it's East Coast moms and you're the only, the only male there, (laughs) Um, I don't think I ever shared on the podcast before, but it, it was very helpful for me to see how people that were doing this full time were pricing things, how they were dealing with contract negotiations and then turning that into, you know, my business and figuring out how to, how to go down the road that way. Yeah, really, really interesting there. Oh yeah nobodys else, nobody else has got that out of me, so that's good.
1: <laughs> oh, that's such a fun story i love I love that you stayed not only did you go, but you stayed and you had conversations and you probably did learn some things um from those conversations that you could apply to your business
0: Oh hundred percent I still go to the the meetups they they have one every uh used to have one every quarter. obviously we're not having them right now but i, I mean I presented now a couple of times on the on the stage there so um yeah <laughs> so it's they changed. they shortened their names to e c m media influencers in order to be more inclusive although it's for those that know what it means (laughs) it's still a little bit exclusive but anyway that's that's kind of a cool story i think that's the important part is get talking with other people whether it's in a you know whether it's in the grab connect facebook group or whether it's you know following people's blogs or websites getting talking and and understanding pricing is a really important aspect are there any other sort of challenges you think that might come up for people that they should be thinking about ahead of time or if they're in it right now you know some guidance on how they can get through that
1: I think for me, like actually forming a business and, and trying to figure out where to go from there, I made it more difficult than it had to be. Uh, there were a lot of people who recommended getting in touch with your local chamber of commerce, getting getting in touch with local small business groups. And I didn't do that. And I should have, because once I did get in touch with those people, it, it became a lot easier to know what my next step was. I didn't feel as anxious or as uncertain or or even know necessarily the right questions to ask. So. I, I feel like there was a lot of business advice that I that I avoided at the beginning because I was anxious to put myself out there as a businesswoman. And I wish that I had done that differently at the start. I think I would have gotten up and running faster.
0: I was I was anxious to put myself out there as a blogging woman as well. So <laughs> yeah, I really like that advice. I think it's really helpful. So the last kind of question I want to close up on before we finish up this interview. It's something back to this kind of closing the whole loop here. So you mentioned this assistantship where you did this sort of training on social media, on, you know, writing, professional writing and that. Did you find there's anything in, and I'm not exactly sure how it was structured, if it's like, you know, classroom and training and learning, but it was in that position. Was there anything that you learned there that once you went to the, the world of online business as your own, you know, your own business that sort of, you know, fell apart or like what, what did you learn from the theory that when you actually start applying it in real life turned out to be, you know, they had to switch or pivot on if there was anything.
1: Oh, that's a good question. So, I actually didn't get a lot of training directly through my assistantship. Um, I had a web writing training. I had like a web ambassador training, so I could use their CMS, their content management system for their website. And I had kind of a little training on social media. But other than that, they didn't. They didn't provide a lot of training. We kind of had to figure it out as we went along. And since I was kind of leading the strategy in terms of where we went from there i focused a lot of my energy on understanding what other english departments in the country were working on what was working for them in terms of recruitment of students and how they were highlighting specifically student activities clubs and organizations as well as student and faculty projects which are all things that that i think really help create that community online and also help you understand as as a prospective student you know what what to expect really specifically in terms of what your life will look like once you get there. So, I think that my own research and my own professional development really kind of prompted the strategy that went from there. And so the more I learned, the more training that I realized I needed. And uh, I think that that, that that's an easy hole to get sucked down. I think I spent too much time on training when I first got started. Even though it was all beneficial, even though it helped me raise my prices, I should have gotten started earlier. I think that practice and training would have been super beneficial right at the start instead of focusing mostly on training.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the best training and the, the training that you're going to learn the most on is just getting out and doing it. And like, like Seth Godin says, you know, shipping, creating content, shipping in the world, see what comes back. Absolutely. Hope that you get a chance to do it again. And you know that's that's the strategy when you get started. <laughs> that's how you learn the quickest.
1: <laughs> yeah, really diving into to big projects was definitely where I learned the most, where I felt like I had the most growth in terms of my strategies, and where I was able to find new ways to help people, um, improving my business models and systems, and also my service offerings um, based on what people needed and what I could do for them.
0: Love it. So uh, this has been a really interesting interview and we even started a couple things that maybe we'll, we'll talk about in future episodes as well, because it sounds like you have quite a, quite a breadth of experience since I'm um, getting started up in 2018. In terms of what we talked about today around building online business out of graduate school, around social media as an academic, building your, your online presence, building websites as an academic, if somebody wants to learn more about you and your work and your courses or your one-on-one training, or even to get the kind of free material to put out, where's the best spot for them to uh, to check you out at?
1: Well, you can always connect with me on social media um, and always feel free to DM me. I, I spend a lot of time on Instagram and on Twitter at Higher Ed PR. Um, so, always connect with me on social media and definitely check out my website, theacademicdesigner.com. It has a ton of resources. My blog has great advice that you can use to get started and see exactly what you kind of want to build in terms of managing your online presence. There's so many things that you can do that really where you start is up to you.
0: I love it. Well, I appreciate you um, coming on and sharing your your wealth of knowledge with the GrabBlogger community. And yeah, I look forward to getting a chance to get you back on the podcast in the future.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. This has been a, such a fun conversation.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. We'll be talking soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Jennifer Van Alstein from the theacademicdesigner.com and com. We've been talking about building an online business out of graduate school. We talked about Jennifer's backstory, about how she started getting information and sharing and, and creating online material during her graduate degree as part of an assistantship that she signed up for, so a job through her, her university there. And really some of the the interesting details there around creating content, overcoming that sort of fear of wanting to get that out there. And then the, the inkling, the spark of, can this be an online business? Can this be something I could actually do to support myself and to support my family? And we talked about that through that journey, going from starting with consulting, moving into courses and content creation and training and And into what is a full-time business now at the academic Designer, uh, dot com. so we we talked to a couple of things. We talked about the types of business models around one on one coaching, full website design for larger institutions, larger groups, uh, but also having short courses and training for people that kind of want to do one on one and do it themselves. We talked about content creation from the research phase to um, how to come up with what to write, different techniques like interviews and even roundup posts. Um, and we talked about challenges that she she overcame throughout her uh, through her journey including some of the big ones around pricing finding the right colleagues to connect to we didn't dive into it but ignoring the haters ignoring the negative information that was coming in and sifting through that to find the the gold nuggets that really went into to developing her business we shared a personal story with myself spending uh, uh many uh, an evening and, and a weekend at uh online blogging conferences in the local area with the, the East Coast Moms Group. So shout out to them if anybody's listening, ECM. And uh, yeah, we kind of closed up on some of these challenges and talking through them. So it's an interesting interview for me. I really enjoyed it. It was nice to think back to that time of graduate school and finishing my PhD and finishing my graduate work and thinking, shoot, this could be something. We can build this with creating content and and maybe this can be an online business someday To to look back to where I'm at now, where this is a uh, my full time job, It's uh, we have a team of, of a number of people that we're supporting throughout Canada and around the world. Um, and it's uh, been a really cool journey. So I've enjoyed sharing part of that. So that's it for this episode. As always, you can grab the transcripts at grabblogger.comslash 68. We have a nice PDF download that you can get there. Uh, if you like the episode, you can give myself a shout out on Twitter or Instagram at grabblogger or give Jennifer a shout out. She's at Higher Ed PR on both those platforms. And beyond that, I hope you have a, a great week ahead and I'm really forward to bringing you to the next episode of the GrabLogger podcast with another interview or another solo show to help you build an online business build your expertise and around the change you want to make in the world.